Hey everybody, it's Richard, Tom, and Galen, and we're here with another uh, interesting episode of Millennial X Coffee Talk. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit more about social justice. Um, we've got people slowly coming into this one, so uh, we'll be adding them as they come along. But right now, Kyle and James, thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you being here. And I want to take a minute and introduce my good friend, uh, public defender, Oscar Bobro. Morning. Our, our kids are good friends. Um, that's how we've known each other and, and I've learned a lot from him, uh, specifically around what's happening in the criminal justice system and with everything going on in the world today, we thought it was time to talk about this. So, Oscar, thanks for joining us. Welcome, happy to be here. Yeah, so just you know, to let people know that um, by all means, if you've got questions, we want you to ask them of Oscar. You can ask them of us privately in the chat if you want, if you just want it to be anonymous, that's okay. But Oscar, let's, let's just sort of jump in and, and get started of like, what is the role of a public defender, right? Like we see it on Law and & Order and we see it in movies and I get the impression that it's not quite um, like that. Well, there's some accuracy, um, but you know, don't believe what you watch on TV. Um, the public defender's job is basically um, represent people that can't afford their own lawyer and in the criminal context. And so if you're arrested for a crime and you're um, either in jail or ordered to come to court, um, the first question that the judge will ask is, you're, will tell, the judge will tell you, you're entitled to have a lawyer represent you. Um, can you afford to hire your own lawyer? Um, and some people don't know. They they're, most people are like, well, you know, I haven't been in trouble before, or um, I, I'm unfamiliar with this. And the judge will then ask financial questions. You know, are you on government assistance? How much money do you make a month? Um, are you, uh, do you have debts? Do you have children? Things like that. And the court will do kind of an on-the-spot, quick fiscal assessment. And more often than not, um, the people that are predominantly arrested are low income um, or can't afford it. And if it's a very serious case, they really can't afford it because private attorneys charge lots of money for um, very serious cases. And so um, our office mans the court, so to speak. And so we usually always have somebody in there and then the judge will say, okay, well, I'm going to appoint the public defender to represent you. And then hands us a copy of whatever the charging document is. Um, we do a quick assessment, um, enter a plea um, of not guilty because that starts the ball rolling of the next procedure and then we get a new court date and then we take it from there. We do everything that you do see on TV. We, um, it, with people that are in custody, we actually um, try to do interviews beforehand because we know in the morning, I will get a list at six o'clock in the morning or earlier of all the people that have been arrested the night or the two days before. Um, and they will uh, list what the charges are. We have a computer system where we can look up to see if these are people we've represented before or we have any conflict in regard to representing them now or if they ever have contact with the criminal justice system in our jurisdiction. Um, and then um, we try to do what are called, what we're doing here, iWeb visits um, at the jail. If we contact the jail and say, hey, the, the following five people are due to be on the afternoon calendar um, and they've been charged with X, Y, and Z, can you bring them to a room? It's a private room. Um, and we kind of tell them what's going to happen before they walk into that courtroom and, and get uh, told what they're charged with. How many, how many clients do you try to handle or are you, do you need to handle so in the world? I'm the managing um, deputy in the, the, the office, that, the branch office that I'm in. I have 11 felony deputies and three misdemeanor deputies that are in this office. Each one of those 11 felony deputies has between 40 and 50 open felonies at any given time. And the misdemeanor deputies have between uh, 170 and 200 misdemeanors at any given time. So we have, in, in my little branch, um, 
about 600 misdemeanors and about 550 felonies that are alive at, at every day. And so things come up, um, to say the least. Um, and the main office, the office that's bigger, where I used to supervise, um, has a kind of a larger group, and there are more people in my role that uh, are involved in helping um, supervise all those people. I also have my own set of cases um, where I'm going to court. So, you know, we're busy all the time. Things are coming up all the time. Um, people always say, oh, the public defender is, you know, uh, overburdened uh, and under-resourced. I have not found that to be the case. I've found that, you know, you can manage even when the caseloads get uh, large. You can manage the, uh, the volume. Um, and, you know, the, the good thing is the court can only handle one case at a time. Um, and so it can only be on the record in one case at a time. Although there are several across the street from where I'm seated, there are several courtrooms um, that are currently up and running uh, with misdemeanor clients and felony clients. In here. How do you balance? Um, how do you balance sort of the emotional part of, you know, you're there to defend someone, even if they may be guilty of something, but your job is to make sure they get a fair shake, right? Like. How do you sleep? So, so literally, that's correct. I mean, if we start parsing out, oh, I'm not going to work as hard for one client versus the other, we will be accused of, you know, either playing favorites, racism, um, you know, just uh, dropping the ball. The Constitution guarantees everybody the right to a fair trial and a trial of, of one's peers and a, and a fair proceeding. Um, and, you know, that's our job. We take an oath to uphold the Constitution um, and, and to make sure that those rights are protected. Um, if the government, with the resources of the government, can't prove a, a case against somebody, that either means one of two things. They don't have the evidence to prove it or they're just not capable. Um, and, and, and those things are, are very much synonymous in how we operate. We, our job is to put the government to its test um, and make sure that everybody is provided with a fair hearing. Yeah. How do you, so you know the big thing that, that I know you and I talked offline and, and I know an article literally came out yesterday about some work you're doing in the California State Legislature, legislature about a jury of your peers, right? Yeah. That definition looks really good on paper. But in reality, it doesn't seem to be true. Like I know when we were setting up this conversation, you know, you had mentioned that so many times, you know, the, the defendant may be the only person of color, right? Maybe the only black or African-American person or Hispanic person and everybody else in the jury is white. How do we, how's that justified? <laughs> like, I mean, it's I know not, there's four cases. It's right? not, I mean, you are, so the Constitution does require you to, to have a jury of your peers. This is a, a developing concept that's, you know, a jury of one's peers in 1780 whatever was a bunch of all white guys that were landowners. Um, we have um, come a long way in regard to how we interpret a jury of one's peers and the right to a, a try to confront and cross-examine witnesses in the trial. And so, um, California specifically um, has two lists that they use to summon jurors. They are the Department of Motor Vehicles list and voter registration list. Um, they have, uh, in the, since the 1980s, um, only used those two lists in order to summon jurors. And, and in representing people over time, I have seen, my colleagues have seen, um, a, a, as you just said, a vast underrepresentation of minority populations in the pools that come in based on those two lists. And that's for a variety of reasons. Um, there's been a lot of social science studies about that, about the underrepresentation of minority populations in the jury pools, because um, I'll just give you some of the main reasons. You're not required to have a driver's license, and you have to pay to get it. You're not required to vote. It's up to you to vote. So if you don't choose to engage in those things, 
you're not going to make it on the list. Well, people that are financially strapped, to say the least, um, are in this country and in this state are more often than not disproportionately uh, represented in the minority communities. And so African-Americans and Hispanics, um, even though the census has a certain percentage of, of what their populations are in every different county, actually in every different zip code in the state, the people that are summoned um, are not always going to represent equally, and in fact, always going to represent unequally the, those percentages in the jury pools. Um, the other problem is, even if you did register to vote or you did have a license, you're not, you know, you don't have to renew your reg voter registration. Um, and oftentimes, um, low-income communities move more than um, people that are well-off and can afford homes and stay in the same place for extended periods of time. And you're not required to renew your driver's license for five years. It used to be 10 years. And so there's a, a great deal of summoning for jurors that goes to what we call dead households. Um, and so then the people that do show up are overrepresented in the Caucasian or, or white community. And so what, what the legislation that I introduced has to do with um, three decades of fighting this in the courts um, because the courts have been we, have been, we have done our own studies to show, hey, um, for example, in the county you and I live in, Richard, uh, in 1989, the California Supreme Court acknowledged that there's an underrepresentation of half of the black population in the jury pool. Um, and they issued an opinion and said, yes, that's true. I, we see the statistics and we understand that the jury commissioner has, um, has uncovered this. But they're using voter registration and Department of Motor Vehicles. Those lists aren't racist in and of themselves. That's not intentional discrimination. That's just the fact that you know people aren't registered to vote or people don't have licenses. So we can't blame the jury commission. But that's but isn't that so? That's more of a socioeconomic issue, right? So yes, and, and, but, but the problem is, um, you know, that that went on for decades. Um, and we kept showing and they kept saying, and as recently as two years ago, the California Supreme Court, and I actually argued the case, um, upheld a, a death penalty verdict where an all-white jury voted to send a person, an African-American man to death, uh, to sentence him to death for homicides that he had committed, um, where there was a, a clear, again, underrepresentation based on using those two lists. So the legislation that we proposed is to um, incorporate state tax filers into the, the group of, of people that have to be summoned to court. Um, and by incorporating that list, you, one, get a more updated group of people because you file your taxes every year, um, and you have a more expansive pool because it's not just people that file, it's anybody with a social security number that gets uh, either financial assistance from the state um, or or has some kind of tax identification associated with that number and an income would be subject to the list. So we widen the pools. And right now in the country, in 17 other states use state tax filer lists. 33 other states, um, other than California, use lists in addition to Department of Motor Vehicles, like telephone directories or utility lists um, or, or government assistant list. There are, there are other lists that the, the government has access to that they could use. How do you, how do you think the, you know, the, the current state of affairs, right, with everything that's been going on over the summer um, around Black Lives Matter has affected this legislation to, to be taken, right, for, for legislators to finally go, okay, we need to do something about this. Yeah, I, I mean, as, as one of my colleagues in San Francisco, um, recently uh, coined the phrase, this is a George Floyd moment. Um, we uh, are taking the, the tragedy and the uh, focus that's on the inequality in the criminal justice system and the, uh, the racism that's inherent in it that everyone is seeing and saying, okay, we need to do anti-racist things. We need to fix broken systems. And this legislation, I introduced this legislation in 2016. Um, it, it 
died in the Appropriations Committee despite several hearings. Um, we reintroduced it again. Wait, hold on a second. I want to know, granted, you know, it's, it's tragic in, uh, on, on the George Floyd moment, but why would it not come out of committee? Like, what did you run into? Because I think, I, I'm glad it's out of committee now, right? Like, I'm glad we're going there, but what was that like? Like, what was their rationale? So, um, on this piece, there really was no opposition politically. The opposition came from the Franchise Tax Board themselves saying, oh, we're going to have to spend money to make sure that we have an address associated with everybody that files a state, a, a residence address with everybody that files a state tax return. Um, and so that's going to um, impact us financially and we're not willing to do that blam it was gone in the appropriations i mean it's the the legislative process is a fascinating thing which i've learned a lot about in the last five years um, that there are things that happen behind the scenes and that you have no idea why they happen i mean um one time this legislation was last year this was part of a different piece of legislation that allowed for felons to now serve ex-felons, people that have served their time and they're not on probation or parole anymore, to participate in the jury system. This was part of that. And at the last minute, it went into an appropriations committee and it came out absent this piece. And we're, we were like, how did that happen? Well, appropriations decided. Who in appropriations decided? Oh, we can't tell you that. Um, and so there's a lot of backdoor stuff that goes on in the halls of the state capital that um, is unexplainable to say the least. You think, but, but without, you know, I, don't want, I don't want anybody to start Googling and, and researching who these people are, but do you think when the, the appropriations committee, you know, says we don't want to spend the money, do you think that that's with any level of racism in it? Or do you think it's there? Do you think they're justifying it as a budget thing? Or do you think like, I think they try to justify things as a budget thing, um, but they also are lazy. Um, and, you know, if I had to guess, they didn't want to do the work. Um, and there's a lot of things that go on in the legislature and they, they make decisions based on whatever their personal preferences are. I reached out to members of the Franchise Tax Board that we had been in discussions with when it disappeared. Um, and said, I, I don't get what you're doing. Um, this, th there's no political opposition to this. This should, should have been the law 20 years ago. What do you, you know, you need to step up. And I got silence in response. Um, and so now again, this, this, this focus on the inequalities that exist in the criminal justice system is giving us hopefully the impetus to move these things forward um, and these kinds of changes forward. So, so now that, and you know, I'll paraphrase it, but now that, you know, you know, the white suburban areas are paying attention, the appropriations people feel like, okay, now I got to do something. Well, yeah. And I think that if people are standing in the way, they realize that there'll be a focus on them as to why they're standing in the way and who they are and, you know, what is their motivation for not doing what the, in a common sense um, a solution to a, a long-standing problem. So I want to I shift back to the trial for a little bit, right? So sure. we've, all, we've all talked about, you know, we've all seen it in the movies about jury selection and, you know, everybody can strike people. You know, you get so many strikes. My interpretation is, you know, the public defender can strike people and so can you. Like, is that, I mean, are, are the prosecutors really like, hey, you know what? you're black, you're African-American, you're Hispanic, I don't want you on the jury. Like, do they literally say that out loud? Great and timely question. Um, there was a study uh, that came out just a few weeks ago. This is also part of legislation that's being introduced um, by UC Berkeley professor Elizabeth Semmel called Whitewashing the Jury. And what she and, and members of her uh, staff, law students at UC Berkeley, did was for the last, I think it's 20 years, analyze um, Court of Appeal opinions 
upholding challenges as uh, to strikes by prosecutor strikes by anybody in, in criminal cases uh, where the basis for that was race. In other words, if you're in a courtroom and the panel is made up of potentially 12 people and the judge turns to you and says, okay, do you have any challenges based on the conversations we've just had with all these jurors? And somebody says, well, I'm gonna strike that person over there. And the other side says, wait a minute, there's like two black people in the whole courtroom and you're striking one of them, why are you doing that? Um, that's called a uh, Batson-Wheeler challenge or Batson-Wheeler-Johnson, it's based on cases that say, you're not allowed to make challenges based on race. And so the judge then has to analyze, well, what's your reason for striking that person? Um, and the prosecutor is put on, on the spot to say what they did it for. Um, and what the study that was done by UC Berkeley um, uh, showed was that more often than not, the kinds of answers are, well, I didn't like their body language. Um, they had their arms folded. Um, they were wearing too much jewelry. Um, they knew somebody who had a bad experience in the criminal justice system. Although they said they could put that aside and be fair, I don't trust them. And so what um, this study showed was that in 72% of all of the um, strikes that were done um, over the last 20 years, they were done by prosecutors against African-Americans or Hispanics. Um, and the reasons were the kind of things I, I just said. And yet the Court of Appeal has upheld those strikes. So the state of Washington about three years ago came up with a solution for a similar thing happening there. And they said those kinds of reasons, body language, uh, location of residence, high crime area, um, prior bad conduct, prior bad experience with law enforcement are no longer valid reasons. You can't kick people off just for that because what you're doing is hiding racism. Um, and we're going to stop that. And we're going to impose a rule. And the state of Washington did impose a rule and listed a whole bunch of reasons as to why you're not allowed to give those as answers when, when you're challenged as to why did you just strike that person of color that's a potential juror in this, in this process. And California is, has pending in the legislature uh, bill, Senate Bill 3070, to sort of mirror what they did in the state of Washington, to preclude people from making race-based challenges, um, masking them. Have, do, you know if they've, do you know if in Washington they've seen an increase in balance? I don't know that it's been studied yet. Um, okay. but but I know that uh, it's... What do you... So, and so you, you, you know these judges, right? Like, it's, at some point, you know, I want you to be a judge. Because, um, you know, I, I know, I know you have, have strong opinions, but what are the judges' rationales? Like, are they really hiding behind legal precedents? Right? I, so, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting um, dilemma because when you're up there and, and uh, one side is accusing the other side of, of making a racist... Um, move in, in regard to the process, um, you don't want, the judges don't want to be seen as, oh, you're right, he's a racist. He just, what he just did was racist. Um, and so they go out of their way to rubber stamp the, the decisions and the decision making of the prosecutor. I mean, I can tell you of a, a, just a couple of quick examples um, that I personally experienced. Um, in, a, in a death penalty case I tried in, in 1997, um, after we had gone through, the death penalty trials take a long time to pick a jury because you have to get people that say that they, they believe that the death penalty can be an appropriate punishment. And so that excludes a large portion of people um, to begin with. But in a capital case where, um, an African-American woman was struck, and this was like the second or third one that the prosecutor had struck. Um, the, the, I accused them of, you know, trying to, to my client was African-American, of trying to make sure that there are no African-Americans on this jury um, and, and challenged his reason. 
Um, and the, the answers that that juror had given was, were, in my opinion, incredibly benign. Um, she had no real experience with the criminal justice system. She had no opinions that were negative about how the, the process worked. And, and I believe that sincerely that this strike was based on race. Um, the prosecutor asked for a recess so that he could go get his notes to find, to, to tell the judge why it was that he had struck this woman and came back and made up a bunch of hooey basically that um, that the judge, you know, in in the at the time, the only solution to doing that, um, if he grants my objection, is to start all over. And that judge was not going to start all over. There are now solutions where you can just make that juror stay if you find it's based on race, but at the time it would have made them go back to scratch um, and start the, the process again. But you know. They were trying to kill my client. And so when you think about what our obligation is, and, and I believe, you know, in this instance, um, not only was I doing everything possible to win the case, but I, I believe that, that the homicide that occurred was a self-defense shootout and not a, did not warrant a capital verdict, um, and that he was defending his life when he, when he fired the, the weapon that was involved in this case. And so but the judge upheld the strike. And, and, you know, similar circumstances, I tried a three strikes case in the, in the early 2000s. Um, guy was charged with a, uh, uh, being part of a group of people involved in a homicide. And there was a, an elderly African-American man on the jury and a, a younger one. The elderly man was kind of, uh, it was difficult for him to stay awake because you know jury selection is is kind of long and boring and so he was and you're all the jurors are required to pay attention to what's happening in the courtroom at all times that he was during jury selection kind of nodding off and we were taking breaks in order for him to be refreshed and um and, and attentive and what the other african-american man asked to go in the chambers and he said you know, that guy's clearly having a hard time and you guys seem to be having a hard time with him and I just wanted to let you know that I know that. Um, and we were like, thank you very much. And he left and the prosecutor then turned to the judge and said, I'm moving to strike him because he's showing, um, you know, kind of uh, affiliation, this other man. And I believe that that's going to be a strike against me. Um, and it just was a made up reason. And the judge agreed with um, and they let him go over my objection. And, and it's, it's that kind of process that has gone on for years um, where judges and prosecutors and many of the judges that sit are former prosecutors um, that, that rubber stamp each other in regard to this exclusion of the minority population's participation in the jury selection process. So the legislation I introduced, the legislation that's pending in regard to the you know, limitation of the ability to strike people is all designed to put an end to, to trying to whitewash the jury, as we call it, to making sure that people that are accused are, are tried by a jury of their peers, or at least have a better shot at getting a jury of their peers than they currently do in our state. Oscar, can you can you talk a little bit about um, what it's like from an emotional standpoint dealing with folks that um, you talked about a few different death penalty cases where you know, someone's life is on the line of, of you know what, how you know you and and you know how everything goes in, in a court situation and um, and even how that is you know depending on what you're feelings are about the case or what happened in the situation and, and how you're drawn into that and how you're able to handle that um, from an emotional and, and, you know, mindset standpoint. Sure. So when I tried my first death penalty case in, uh, in the mid-1990s, I had black hair. Um, and as you can see, um, it has taken, a, this work has taken its toll. Um, <laughs> that this isn't part genetic, um, but 
you know, it, it is emotionally draining, um, physically draining, um, uh, intellectually draining um, experience of, of being a trial uh, lawyer, of, of having to defend people who potentially could um, have their life taken at the end of a proceeding or clearly have their liberty taken um, for extended periods of time. And, you know, but it's, um, we bring people in at the lowest level um, when they're out of law school, they start with misdemeanor cases and we see how they do and they try misdemeanor cases, drunk driving things, small theft cases. And you learn the skills or in a courtroom where the stakes are not so high. And as you kind of rise up um, in the ranks, the difficulty and the seriousness of the people that you're representing um, increases um, until you get to a level where you're doing the most serious stuff. Um, I've been doing the most serious stuff for a really long time, although now I am in more of a a managerial role. Um, But it does you know, it takes its toll on everybody. These back and forth that I've been describing with the court and with the uh, prosecutors and the jurors, um, you know, you're having this intellectual discourse trying to ensure that the person that is seated next to you, whose life is basically in your hands or whose liberty is in your hands, is getting a fair proceeding. Um, and, you know, our resources are not equivalent to the state's resources. The the prosecutors have the the police. Um, They have their own independent investigators. Um, They have a force of uh, of law enforcement that helps them present their case. We have investigators, our own group of investigators, but they they don't have the wherewithal that a a district attorney's office has. Um, you know, for example, if a witness says to our investigator, I'm not coming, and I, there's nothing you can do about it, and, and, you know, we say, well, here's a subpoena, and they say, take your subpoena and, you know, put it where the sun doesn't shine, um, we can go to court and say, you know, this happened, and we want you to help enforce it, but if you're the police that are serving that subpoena, and that person says that thing, they, they can say, great, put your hands behind your back and we'll go see the judge now um, and he'll take care of this. And so the, the, the resources and the force behind those resources are, are dramatically different. That's not to say that we don't um, you know, accomplish and, and provide uh, fair and, and positive representation and, and go out of our way to get what we need to get, um, but it is more difficult in many instances. And, and those kinds of things take toll on your psyche, on your, uh, you know, on your intellectual capacities when you're trying to balance a whole bunch of other things at the same time. But, you know, it's like anything. It's, uh, I mean, I, I equate trial work to surgery. Um, and uh, what, a, what a surgeon does when somebody's kind of cut open on the table is um, they're doing a lot of things at once, and based on their historical training, they're able to you know, save people's lives. And based on our training, um, we are, in many respects, able to save people's lives. And when we can't, it's either because the evidence is overwhelming or the person is, is absolutely guilty of what they're charged with, um, or for some other reason. And there are people that are wrongfully convicted. There are also people that are wrongfully acquitted. Um, but that's just the, the nature of human uh, interactions in, in the courtroom and in the criminal justice system. Oscar, um, I'm curious to know, what got you into this profession to begin with you know, 25 plus years ago? What was the reason? Because this is not something that everyone could do or would want to do. You know, uh, I've always, uh, I grew up in, in very diverse area of the country. Um, my neighborhood when I was a kid was one of the most integrated places in um, the United States, uh, a little area right outside of New York City. Um, and I think um, watching the 
politics of this country um, as in my formative years when I was uh, high school and, and early years of college, Richard Nixon was the president. Um, and the corruption that I saw, um, the things that uh, happened with the Vietnam War with friends of mine and, and older brothers of, of friends of mine, um, and, and how I felt about the system kind of geared me toward wanting to be involved in a way where I felt I could do something different. And then when I got to law school, um, I, I actually, before I got to law school, I, I was in, uh, I got a couple of political science degrees and then worked for a congressman here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area um, and exposed me to a, a number of injustices, I thought, in the criminal justice system. And then when I got to law school, my first year um, in the criminal uh, law class, we took a trip to a local prison right outside of Washington, D.C. called Lorton. It's where they house all the people that were arrested for crimes in, in, in the District of Columbia. And I felt, I had a few conversations with people in there, and that's kind of what put me over the edge. And I, I kind of never looked back. What do you? Um, oh, oh, go ahead, Gail. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to know too. Like, so you're a public defender right now. Yeah. Have you also worked as a prosecutor, or I just want to understand, like, why would you choose one over the other? Like, what's what's the personal oh, differences uh, of the choice? One, one is. Um, uh, Jews don't accuse, in my opinion, um, and uh, and I I could never be on the side of the what I believe is a government agency that is so inherently entrenched in systematic discrimination um, that it can't get out of it, um, and I. I would not devote my life to that. And, and you know, it's funny that there was an election just uh, this year where um, Chesa Boudin, who was a former public defender in San Francisco, is now the San Francisco district attorney. Um, and he is attempting to turn things around there. And I commend him for what he's done and, and, and how he's handling that position. And there are people around the country that are doing similar things. The district attorney in Philadelphia um, is a, uh, Larry uh, Krasner is a former uh, deputy public defender. Um, and they, these people are insightful and visionary and, and trying to make systematic changes. But for me personally, um, I have always felt that um, I'm justified on, on this side of the table. Um, it's more akin to who I am as a human being. Um, it's kind of the, you know, helping the underdog. Um, and, and, and I've trained myself to be um, the advocate for this side of the criminal justice system. I don't think that training could go away. So what are... I don't believe I could be a prosecutor, at least not in What are what are things that you know? You know, we always sort of say act locally, right? What can the average person do, right, um, if they want to support these kinds of things, right? How do we even know if this kind of stuff's in our state legislature? I wouldn't know unless you told me. I'm a, yeah. I, I mean, I went. Well, to, yeah. I mean, it's it's a question of of trying to to keep track of. of the legislative process and the average person doesn't know. The average person has no idea what's going on other than what's on the news. Uh, and, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, because of the circumstances surrounding it, a spotlight has been placed on the criminal justice system and the mechanisms of the criminal justice system and over-policing in underprivileged communities. Um, I, I just read this morning that the city of Berkeley passed a, a, a local rule to say that the 
police department should no longer be responsible for issuing moving violations in the city limits. Um, and they're cutting the police department's budget because of the, what they believe is the inherent racism that is um, been uh, uncovered in this re-examination of how we are policing, of, of how many people of color are stopped in low-income communities for things like broken taillights and you know, one thing leads to another and that's where all the violence and, and confrontation takes place, you know, the, the majority of it um, in the street between the average uh, minority citizen and, and the police. Um, and I do think there is um, credible um, and logical um, evaluations of, of over-policing throughout the country. I mean, the, the resources of police departments, the financial resources of police departments are devoted primarily to low-income communities. And, and the average response is, well, but that's where all the violence is. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true, uh, that, that low-income communities are more violent than affluent communities. Uh, but the, the interaction with the police it's not community policing, it's kind of like a police state. Um, and, and given what people have seen, um, you know, would you wanna call the police in your community if you live in a low income community and, you, and you're, you believe that you're unsafe? Would you call the police now given that the, how um, it has been uncovered, the police respond in many instances and how things go out of whack? So, you know, we needed to do a lot more rethinking and reshaping. And so, you know, your question about how do you know, I, I think uh, you, you got to teach yourself. You got to be a, a concerned citizen and, and, and reach out and, and to local legislatures. They all have websites. They all have lists of things that they're working on, uh, things that they're doing, uh, issues that they're concerned with. What do we, what do we even Google? Like, what do, like, I wouldn't even know, am I Googling criminal justice reform, Solano County? Am I, like, where, what do I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to look for. Well, I mean, you know, if you want to know what your, your local representative, people that are, are representing your interests are doing, you can go on a, a map and Google um, uh, your zip code and represent it. Um, and you will, you'll come up with your, who your, um, Sorry, um, it will come up with who your uh, your state senator is, who your state assembly person is, who your U.S. Congress person is, and then you can go on their websites and see what they're doing. You can you can Google on their websites criminal justice reform. What are they involved in? Um, our local state senator, who's also a member of our temple, is Steve Glazer. Um, he has been involved in some criminal justice reform. Some of it, I'm not crazy about. He has pushed things um, on behalf of the district attorney of Alameda County. I've seen them sit side by side at council table or at, at legislative hearings where he's pushing for more aggressive um, uh, laws that would lock more people up, basically. And, and, you know, it's so funny, I'll show you something. This is the uh, 2020 California edition of the penal code. Um, when I started working, this thing was about, about that fact. Um, and it is now this fact. Um, because people sit around and think, what can we, I mean, this, you would not believe how thin these pages are and how much language there is on the average page. But this is all the things that you could be charged with in the state of California. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and what you could be sentenced to and how much you could be sentenced to. And, and, and so we have, I mean, Jerry Brown used to always veto legislation if it had any aspect of it in regard to criminal justice um, where it was already covered. I mean, Brown would have kind of a, a road, I have rejected this piece of legislation because um, there are already X, Y, and Z statutes on the penal code that cover this 
activity. We don't need another law. And that's what a lot of legislators do, legislators do, is they come in and they say, oh, I'm gonna you know, make an issue out of some incident that happened in my community and I'm gonna create a new law. And it's, well, there's already five different ways to charge somebody for that behavior. And so you don't need another one. Um, but that's kind of political grandstanding that goes on and for people that are you know, running for re-election. Well, let's see if anybody's got a question they want to ask um, or comment. Um, Oscar, we got to wrap it up in the next five or seven minutes, but okay. uh, one, thank you for, for joining us. But does anybody have a question or comment? If not, I've got a couple more, but I want to open the floor for sure. Sure, I'll bite. Um, when you were talking about when you were talking about the challenges and, and getting people stricken from juries, um, is even if they don't act, ask something that is blatantly racist, there are probably questions that they can ask that are going to significantly skew that way, but aren't viewed as being a racist type question. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing your more savvy prosecutors, that's how they're going to try to get a get around some of those things. Is that an accurate depiction or am I just? Yeah, no, there, there are ways to craft questions where you draw out um, opinions um, of people and, and who they really are. I mean, I'll tell you, when I first stand up in a courtroom, um, I ask people to um, do two things. Um, one is to, to understand that there is no right and wrong answer in regard to any of the questions that are going to be posed. Everybody is who they are and you know we want to know who you are in order to make an informed decision as to whether or not you're right for the case. Um, and then I say, I ask you to think of yourself or someone you care very much about to be seated where the person is who's been accused of the criminal offense that the judge has just told you this trial is all about. And imagine yourself in that position. And then imagine the jury is made up of 12 people that think about the world the way you do, that have had your life experiences, um, your contacts or non-contacts with the criminal justice system, your understanding of the politics of the world, um, and, and tell us as honestly as you can, would you feel comfortable being seated in that position with 12 people that have your life experiences, your thoughts, your, your, um, your, your, your everything that's happened to you deciding your fate. And if you are hesitating in any way or would be concerned about a group of 12 people that have that, then just tell us, you know, there, again, there's no right and wrong answer. Um, and we try to get people to be forthcoming. There are people, you know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a big world, and there are people that um, listen to that and think, I'm not telling him any. I'm going to get on this jury and vote guilty. There are people like that. But there are other people that, you know, are honest about, okay, I'm not suited for this. And, and you know, I, I try to bring out things that, that happened to me along the way. I mean, a long, long time ago, I, um, I lost somebody to a tragic accident um, in in San Francisco who fell through a, a rotten um, railing from three stories up and died. Um, and and you know, it was uh, something that, that rocked my life for a very long time. Um, and if I were called to sit on a jury where it's a civil case, where you know, you're gonna decide was something, uh, was a death constructed improperly or was it, construction default, the result of somebody um, experiencing a death. You don't want me. Um, not because I'm not a fair and objective, reasonable person, because this is going to bring up some stuff that makes me, you know, tear up, um, that makes me emotional, that makes me not objective. And so, you know, you try to convey to the rest of the panel that this is a very serious thing that we're all dealing with. And we can't, in the time period that we have, know everything that's happened to you. But we can tell you what this case is about, what the, you know, the factual scenario that may develop in front of you is. 
And are, are those issues going to rise up in you in a way that keeps you from being objective in any way? And so I think there's a way to, to bring that out, to, bring, to try to get fair jurors. I've, I've had a lot of success with people um, uncovering things about themselves. And, and, you know, we tell them, look, you don't even have to tell us what it is. Um, you could just say, I've thought about this, and there's absolutely no way I can be fair or I can be objective. Uh, and so I'm going to ask to be excused. And, and they're out. And so, you know, it's, it's that kind of trying to, to, to instill in, in potential jurors uh, a sense of, of objectivity that they either can or cannot um, be involved in when, they're, when they become people that decide the fate of one of their fellow citizens. That's a great question, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, we need to wrap it up, but Oscar, thank you so much for joining us. Um, for those Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was very educational and just, you know, super informative. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks everybody for showing up and attending. Yes, we've recorded it, so we will be releasing it as soon as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, please join us again next week uh, for the next Millennial X Coffee Talk. Tom, Gail, do you guys have anything you want to add real quick? No, I just want to say thanks to everyone for showing up. Obviously, thanks to Oscar for helping to educate us. Um, I thought it was a great conversation. Uh, a lot of stuff that pretty much I, I didn't know any of this. So um, I appreciate you uh, coming on and, and sharing everything. And, and again, thanks to everyone for showing up and, and hope to, to see you again next week. Yeah, thank you so much. And Kyle, also, you, you brought up a good point here. Um, you shared a, a link here with opinions on tech jumping in to help, you know, post-incarceration. Um, it's, it's a really good conversation and, and something that I think we can bring up in, in another Millennial X Coffee Talk. Um, but happy to have a side conversation with you about that as well. And if anyone is interested in joining me in my weekly debrief video, I'm going to do that right after this. It only takes like two minutes. It's usually what I keep it to, two to three minutes. So feel free to just ping me, you know, here or on LinkedIn and let me know. And Oscar, thank you so much for taking the time with us this morning for you. And um, really, really valuable and good conversation that we have today. Thank you. Good to meet all of you. Good luck with everything. Everybody stay safe. Thanks.